0: Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. We continue our series called The Rebuilder out of the book of Nehemiah, and uh, it's a time when there are some challenges. And there are some, we've, we've seen external struggles as enemies have tried to stop them in various ways. And now we're starting to see some internal struggles. And as we open this Nehemiah chapter 5, I want to I encourage you to do something for me. Maybe this isn't an issue for you, but it sometimes is for me. Do you ever read a story like in the Old Testament and you're going, Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Or I'm the good guy in the story, right? Whatever happened, if you read the story of Cain and Abel, well, I'm for sure Abel. I'm not Cain, right? So, And you just kind of take your eye off of what God might say to you in the role of the person the story is kind of really aimed at. When Jesus talks to the Pharisees, well, I'm not a Pharisee. (laughs) I don't know what those guys were thinking. I want to do something different today. I want to challenge you to put yourself right in the bullseye of who God is speaking to. Try to put yourself, and I know you're probably not going to like this, but I want to put this in a position where I want the bullseye to be on me. God, make me the worst person in the story. Because when we don't do that, often we miss what God is saying. He's going to speak really harshly to some people today. I want you to take it in. Because I think when God's word targets us, there's opportunity for restoration. So Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah chapter 5, and this is the story of what happens to some people who are being oppressed and being mistreated by some other people. It's been a crazy time in our house these days. Um, we found out that we have some water damage. A while back, we had a little problem, had a little leak, didn't think it was a big deal, it was in our kitchen, it was around our refrigerator water line, got it mopped up, got it fixed, no problem, Right. And we found out that we started to notice some of our flooring was cracked. kind of happened after the fact. Some of our other flooring was bubbled up. Some of our cabinets were really wet and weren't like they were supposed to be. And we, we began to, we had to get our insurance company involved. And they came out and looked. I said, yeah, this is, a, this is a big problem. And so yesterday they came and they tore out some of our cabinets. You know, church life and family life can be that way as well. There can be a traumatic event. There can be something that happens that seems like we got it taken care of. We got past that. We moved on. Everything is fine. It's then later, though, we see some cracks. We see some problems. Some relationships are fractured. Some, the grout that holds things together is kind of loosened up, and things aren't like they should be, and there's some problems. A lot of times they crop up after the fact, after the trauma. We've just been through 16 months of challenging days for most people. And during this time, a lot of people didn't get to spend time together like they normally would. Churches didn't get to gather like they normally would. Trauma has happened, and relationships have been strained. And I'm wondering if there's some cracks in some key relationships today. We're going to see this in Nehemiah chapter 5. It's so important that just as the children of Israel struggled and how they got along and how they treated one another, that we treat each other in a way that glorifies Jesus. So look with me, Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters are so many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now here's what was happening. Remember, they're working on this project, this wall, and some of the the people who weren't as wealthy, who were probably lower class or middle class level, they were having a hard time feeding their very families. Probably the Uh, The building of the wall got them out of their fields. They didn't have the ability to make the money. They probably didn't have any savings, really kind of living on the edge, and things just kind of pushed them over the edge. And they, they said, our brothers are doing this to us. And what had happened is they had begun to borrow money against their fields from the other more wealthy people in the Israelite community in Jerusalem. And they had gotten to the point where they couldn't buy grain to plant anymore. And their sons and their daughters were literally being enslaved. We're having to take jobs or maybe indentured servitude or maybe the daughters even married off to people to pay a debt. It's a very, very trying time and they're not even able, they're having to borrow money to pay the taxes to the king, which was uh, quite high at the time. So they're suffering and the people, the officials and the nobles were the ones who were lending money. Now, it's a big question here, what was wrong with what they were doing? This seems like a normal thing, right? They're lending money to try to help people and certainly if you're a banker, you know that's your business, that's what you have to do. You have to exact some kind of interest in order to make a living. But in this state, what was happening is they were, they were charging really high interest rates, like credit card interest rates, like uh, pawnbroker interest rates, really high interest rates that were legal and probably even customary, but they were doing this to their brothers and sisters. You see, just because something is your right to do doesn't mean that it's right to do, right? Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. doesn't mean you should do it and take advantage of the situation. So what they had done is they had taken their brothers and they had taken their their land and they'd given them money back, but these guys were really in trouble, They were having a really hard time, and they really didn't have any interest or care for them. Verse 5, verse 6, so Nehemiah responds. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And Let me pause there, and you may say, well, wait a minute now. Steve, I've heard you say many times that anger is not normally a good thing and it's not. In scripture, 90-95% of the references to anger are very, very negative, and they're very dangerous, and they're harmful. James 1 20 says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Colossians says, put away these things, anger, wrath, malice. You see, the idea that anger gets in our lives, and when we're angry as people, Jesus said it is as it has the sin of murder. Really, if you're angry at someone, and just selfish rage, it's all about you getting what you want. And there's really only one time, one instance, where we see what we call righteous indignation. Now, so many times we, we use this one, don't we? We want something selfish. You know, I'm mad at you. It's righteous indignation. What you did was wrong, so I'm straightening you out. No, no, you're probably just mad. I would say almost all of my anger ever is sin it's wrong but when the cause of Christ is at stake when the glory of God is about to be lost when the mission is about to completely be lost that's when you see Nehemiah's anger be righteous so don't go home and go I have righteous indignation against you and this is why and you Listen, if it's not about the glory of God, if it's not about the mission of God, it's not righteous as humans. So he says, I was upset. I was mad. I took counsel with myself. I love that about Nehemiah, right? He doesn't just go, hey, I'm mad, and here it is, right? You ever do that? I'm mad, and I'm giving it to you because I'm angry, and I don't want to wait till I cool down because then I won't do it as well. ever do that? It's not what he does, is it? Nehemiah says, I took counsel with myself. But that means he took some time to think about it. I need to consider, this is a really big deal. I need to consider what I'm going to do rather than act out of anger. I want to act in a way that's going to be restorative to the kingdom of God. I want to restore God's glory. I want to bring God's glory rather than than just present my wrath to someone. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers and have been sold into nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. He brings them all together in public. I want to say, if you're going to do it in public, you better be right, and it better be beneficial to everyone. We don't generally bring people in front of the congregation in public because there's a lot of things that can happen that aren't good, but this is a situation that involves really everybody. Everyone's involved. They're either being oppressed or they're the oppressor. So he brings them together, and he says, listen, you guys are essentially making these people slaves, They were slaves, we bought them back, and now you're enslaving them financially with your banking practices. And they're not able to eat, and you don't even seem to care. And you maybe say, wait a minute, that's what's their business, what's wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with it. They were taking advantage of people that were really a part of their nation, of their family, and treating them badly. So wait a minute, if if I have a business, you mean I'm supposed to like give it away to all the church members? If it's really good barbecue, yes. No, no, no. Here's the thing, are you taking advantage of people who can't afford to even eat? Are you not caring that someone can't afford to feed their child and you're making their life harder? And that's really what we're talking about. And I want you to know, church people, if you hire another church member to do a job for you, you need to pay them what it's worth. You don't need to go to them and go, hey, you know, I know you're a carpenter and stuff, so I need you to build my house. I need you to do it really cheap, okay? No, hey, you know, I know you're a lawyer, so would you just take my case for free? You need to pay them what they're worth. But if you're trying to help somebody, if you have a skill Someone in the church needs you. You don't take advantage of them. That's how the world functions. That's how the world asks. I love their response, though. You know, you can really tell someone's character by how they respond when convicted. It says they were silent and they couldn't find a word to say. They were sil- there was no, hey, but, 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 listen, listen, this is why I did this, and this makes sense, and this is customary and legal, and this is what, this is, this is, we're defending ourselves. No, they didn't do that at all. I love that about them. How do you respond when you're convicted? When you know you're wrong, how do you respond? Can you take it? You receive it in silence? Verse 9. And verse 9 is really where the entire story really hinges. It says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Here's the thing. How we treat each other says everything about who our God is. Right? Right? He's saying, listen, if you're walking around, if you're not, if we're treating each other just like the world does, the world goes by and says, well, those people are no different. This this God, this Yahweh, this, this Jehovah, he's not any better than any other God because these people treat themselves, treat each other like everyone else. There's no glory for God in this. See, that's the heart of Nehemiah's anger. He's all about the glory of God. They're rebuilding this wall to rebuild the glory of Jerusalem and the security of Jerusalem to bring God glory so that his people can function as his people. But if the people function like everyone else, the project is worthless. There's no difference, there's no glory bought, brought to God. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts? Of our nations and our enemies. Verse 10 Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this, this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. In other words, give it all back. This was going to be costly, this was going to cost them a lot. Give back these fields and these vineyards they were holding mortgages over to give back what they had been taking from them. Verse 12, and how would they respond? And then they said, We will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied, and all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Wow, not only were they silent, they did exactly as Nehemiah had asked. And then he makes them swear, and has a curse on them if they don't do what they say they're going to do. I love that, because you know we can honestly say, oh yeah, yeah, we'll take care of it, and then we never do it, right? oh yeah, yeah, it sounds good when we're in this solemn assembly and all these people are around, I'm going to promise to do it. No, he, he says, you're going, to, you're going to swear to do it. And they actually do it. They actually do what Nehemiah had told them to do. They, they carry out these acts of repentance and set right and do the right thing rather than the thing they had the right to do. So Steve, what does that have to do really with us? Because probably none of you have borrowed money from someone else in the church. Probably none of you even likely work for someone else in the church. You may say, well, I don't understand how this works. listen, it's all about how we treat one another. It's all about how we treat each other in our close relationships and in our distant relationships. Philippians, 3, Philippians 2, verse 3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, that's exactly what they weren't doing. Looking at the interest of others, the interest of those they were doing business with, what's best for them? Do I need to help them? Do I need to forgo making money here and just do what I can to help my brother or sister? And then he gives the example, verse 5 have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But what does he do? He empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus emptied himself of what he had a right to. He didn't have to come and die for us. There's no no law compelling him to do that. That's why the gospel is so much better than the law, amen? I'd much rather live a gospel-shaped life than a law-shaped life, right? He does the unthinkable. He empties himself of everything he had a right to do. You know, we're so big on rights today, aren't we? You violated my rights. I have a right to do this. Jesus gave up all his rights for the sake of us. He causes us, He calls us to follow that example. In verse 8, And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, He not only emptied Himself, but He prepared Himself to suffer the ultimate suffering and the ultimate embarrassment, the ultimate torture. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed Him bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. That's the example of how we're to love each other. Interested in what their needs are and their interests are. Putting others as more significant than ourselves. That's the pattern for love. That's the example for love. Romans 12:41 talks about making the other stumble. See, they were making their brother stumble. I love how it says it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Is anything in your life causing someone to have a harder life? Anything at all that's going on with you, the example that you set, the way that you live, the way that you treat people, does it make it harder for them to follow Jesus? They live like you, would they be able to, to follow Jesus better? Jesus gives the ultimate commandment regarding how we treat one another. in John 13: 34 and 35, it says this, "A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, here's what he's saying. Just like in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time, everyone will know Jesus by how well we love like Jesus. And if we don't love like Jesus, you cannot expect people to know Jesus. You cannot expect your friend to know that you love Jesus if you treat your spouse, your husband, your wife, just like the world treats their husband or wife. You can't expect a friend to know Jesus, a neighbor to know Jesus, if you're treating your parents the way every other kid treats their parents. You can't expect the world to know Jesus if you treat your friends the way everyone, your friends in the church or members of the church the way the world treats their friends. It's got to be something different. Jesus said, they'll know you belong to me if you love like me. If you love like me. let me ask you, how are your loving relationships? Your closest relationship, if you're married, your husband or wife. Has COVID and the challenges of the last months, has it resulted in some cracks? Is there some distance there? Have you kind of fallen into the way that you treat each other, the way the world marriages work? Maybe you've become short with one another. Maybe you've come distant from one another. Maybe, you haven't, maybe you've had a hard time being loving to one another. And the relationship has grown distant and cold and coarse. How has it been for your children? How has it been for your parents? Have you begun to treat your parents the way that the world's kids treat their parents? Have you treated your kids in that way? Have you treated your kids in a way that the world treats their kids? Without that kind of love to give them an opportunity to grow and thrive and develop while holding them accountable for the cause of Christ? Maybe siblings. How have you treated your siblings? Treat them like the world treats them? Or have you looked out for their interest even more than your own? And what about other members of the church? Are there people that maybe you haven't seen in a long time you need to connect with and remember and revive those relationships? And are we loving each other the way that Jesus loved so we need to love like Jesus so the world will know Jesus. We need to love like Jesus so the world will know Jesus. What's God saying to your heart today? Does Jesus live there? You know, I really think that the pandemic has caused people to realize, does Jesus matter to me, really? Maybe you got out of church, maybe you're back, maybe you're watching online today and you're saying, you know what, I, I don't know, I, I feel so distant from him. Listen, today is the day to draw close. Say, Jesus, I, I don't know what's happened, but I want to restore my relationship with you or maybe I need to begin it for the first time. And repent of my sin and receive your Holy Spirit, be forgiven and be able to live for you. But for some of us, a lot of us follow Jesus for a long time. But the pandemic happened, and now there's some cracks that need to be dealt with. We're going to take a few minutes to let the Spirit speak to our hearts and examine some of our relationships and ask the Spirit to reveal to us whether or not we've been loving the way Jesus loved. Would you bow with me?